So, do you like podcasts? Do you like movie podcasts? Yes! 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 If so, check out All Things Film, a collection of the best film, TV and movie podcasts on the internet. Groovy. Film Rave. It was only a pound. The podcast on Fire Network, Daily Grindhouse, Mass, Movie Side, UK, and of course, Film Sploitation. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. What? Anyway, all the best podcasts, film and TV related, under one roof. That's all things film. Boys and girls, go back to your studies. Believe me, nothing in life is free. Well, oak and dread, Batman. All Things Film is 100% free. And you can find out more on iTunes. Search All Things Film or online. Allthingsfilm.thefilmpodcast.co.uk Oh, sorry. I think I must have pressed the wrong button. Is anyone left? Toto? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Welcome to Japan of Fire 17 on Mamoru Oshii's movies Avalon and the Skycrawlers. And this is the finale of our long-running Oshii coverage. Long in terms of few episodes made over a long time due to various uh, reasons. And they we're closing out the coverage of the man with a Bible in one hand and a Basset Hound by his side, by his other side. And uh, we've gone through his early days in anime, live action... How he created history by retelling it through his Kerberos saga, and how he made actual history with anime classics such as Pat Labor and Ghost in the Shell. And in this final episode, we do the mix of live action and anime again as we close out the coverage with a look at his live action Polish language movie Avalon from 2001, and finally his 2008 anime The Sky Crawlers. And my name is Kennedy, and uh, to close out the coverage, uh, therefore, is the cinema show's Coffin John. So, welcome back, buddy. Oh, thank you very much. Good to uh, hear from you, Ken, and uh, good to be able to talk about Oshi once again. You should invite me on the show a little more often, Ken. <laughs> well, I haven't done anything in between. It's like I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Can John stop yeah. living life and get back to podcasting? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it's completely, I guess, my my fault. I guess you could say uh, that uh, we haven't uh, been able to record in the last over a year. It's been now something like Hasn't that. Eight, something eight, like eight, ten months or something like that. And uh, yeah, so but, uh, my my apologies. Well, you good man. You got married and uh, and uh, enjoyed life, and still you're you're still enjoying life. That's not why you're podcasting. Like. <laughs> Shit sucks now. I gotta get back into <laughs> podcasting. No, no, it's all good. Um, right on. And I know John has uh, bought a uh, dog in the meantime. Why didn't you buy a basset hound? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, the thing was that we had a nice opportunity. Uh, we we have a Boston Terrier here. My wife had, and uh, you know, the opportunity was there. So, but I was still like, yeah, kind of disappointed. Like, oh man, the basset hound. 
<laughs> so yeah. goddamn cute. <laughs> yeah. They are, they are actually, I, I actually like them. If anything, O'Shea has been like the promotional tool worldwide for that particular race. Right, <laughs> yeah. It. They're everywhere and for good reason. I love the story, by the way, uh, off topic almost already. In one of the making ofs for Avalon, uh, there's some subtitled making ofs on my DVD. Uh, O'Shea said, like, uh, he had the hound, uh, Bastard Hound there for like two, three days. And the day he was uh, set to leave with his owners, he just about cried, which was sweet, <laughs> you know. But uh, when the act, essentially what he was saying, like, uh, I reacted more towards that than compared to when the actors had their last day. <laughs> but, you know, that's sweet, you know, he, he, he loves his uh, dogs and what have you. And um, so, so it's good. It's all good natured. Uh, but all right, let's uh, get into it after some brief contact information. This is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. We are on podcastonfire.com along with uh, a few other shows and bonus episodes. Uh, email podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash POF Network, and join our discussion group if you want to interact with us and see current updates and what have you. Uh, there's a direct link on our uh, page, but you can also type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar, and that should get you the group. Uh, we have a Twitter account over at twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. I write about this um, uh, dirty movies, essentially. <laughs> Crappy movies, dirty movies at sogoodreviews.com. Uh, and I do video reviews at sleazykvideo.com. My focus is uh, Taiwanese uh, genre, cinema of the 70s and 80s, category free. Uh, some uh, Godfrey Ho movies, uh, Richard Harrison's exploitation, uh, as you might call it. Uh, that, that's my sort of calling right now to to highlight crap like that. And I, as of recording, I just watched another one. <laughs> Ninjas spinning plates. Ooh, sounds like a winner. Absorb that. that. That's super hard and super hardcore and intimidating. Like, what are you on, Godfrey? But I, I, I was kind of uh, grateful that I got to see that. Uh, really embarrassing. Good fun. I tweet at uh, twitter.com forward slash so good review so you can follow my nonsense over there. Japan on Fire is on iTunes. Rate and subscribe. And if you have the time, please leave a small written comment if you like the show or if you have a, a, a good natured, balanced opinion about it, good or bad. And you can also stream us on the application Stitcher, available online, but also to your iPhone, iPad, or Android. And type in Japanifier once you're in Stitcher, and that will get you the opportunity to add us to your favorites list. TheCinemaShow.com is your uh, home away from home, if you will, your online uh, endeavor, along with all your writers. So, John, so I want to tell us again a little bit about vCinema and what's going on. Yeah, well, vCinema is located, as you mentioned, Ken, at vCinema Show. That's S-H-O-W dot com. And the show was actually meant to reflect that uh, we ha- we ourselves had a podcast at one time. Um, unfortunately, um, I dissolved that early last year. Uh, that would be 2013. Uh, I know we're already dating ourselves here, but... Um, but uh, we had the podcast for a while, but uh, I dissolved it just because I just didn't have the time and the drive to do it anymore. Uh, part of the reason why I'm on here with you, Ken, uh, thanks for giving me a little soapbox on the Internet. And, and you don't have to pro- produce it and uh, put in the time as much, obviously. I, I, you leave the editing to me and, uh, you know, and to trust my judgment. You do all the hard work, I get all the glory. That's That's how it's all, that's what it's all about, you know. But um, anyway, uh, vCinema does have a regular website, and we post primarily film reviews, um, uh, of course, Asian film, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm on here with Ken. And um, 
you know, right now, actually, I'm not editing uh, any of the uh, website. Uh, my um, my esteemed, uh, I guess you could say, coworker. Um, now, I guess I should just call him an associate editor. Uh, Dr. John Barra is doing uh, all the editing and posting at the moment, um, and he's been doing a great job. I have to say, um, you know, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to get the time to do it. You know, in, in addition to doing vCinema, of course, he has a regular job. He's a doctor. He's a professor in uh, in China, professor mm. of uh, film studies. So um, he's been doing that. Um, I've been slowly working my way into getting back on the website and doing stuff. Uh, a little tough right now, you know. As you mentioned, uh, Ken, uh, in the last year or so, you know, my life has taken a complete 180. I got married. Um, I found it fit at the time also to um, purchase a place of our own. So, you know, I live about 40 miles from where I used to live. Um, I live in uh, San Jose, California, which, to um, you know, fans of your show who are also hockey fans, is the home of the San Jose Sharks. Who mm-hmm. are the yeah, it's uh, ongoing playoffs at the moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In fact, there was a game just a couple nights ago, uh, and I heard the Sharks won. I'm not a big hockey fan, so... Right. <laughs> but, no. but anyway, so I'm slowly trying to get back into, you know, writing about film, thinking about film, um, and getting back on the website, and I would love to get the podcast going again, um, but... It would have to be with the right circumstances, um, i.e., probably not on Skype. Um, yeah. You, know, so do, you, you want you want to do a, a a table discussion of sorts with either one or two people, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I mean, Skype is great. You know. I mean, we're we're doing the show on Skype now. If your audience doesn't know that, <laughs> but um, Ken travels to San Jose every time. <laughs> yeah. That's right, why right. we can't do it every Welcome goddamn back, week. Man. Thank um, you. Too hot of it. You come in for a couple of hours and then you're back off. <laughs> but um, you know, it's just a it's just a situation that it would make it easier for you know me putting the show together. But that that's just no, that's a little bit behind the curtain anyway. But hopefully, I'd be able to get the podcast together again sometime soon. But uh, you know, again, it'd be under circumstances a little different from uh, those that had happened um, earlier. So, but anyway, visit the site vcinemashow.com. Do you even have the domain vcinema.com or that's taken? Uh, vcinema.com. Someone is, I think, um, squatting on it. Squatting on it, yeah. I've, I've never bothered contacting the person, but there is a vcinema.com that has some, you know, BS search stuff on it you know right okay yeah. don't go there the cinema show show.com so rundown of what's to come because uh, we have a few segments here so if you want to jump ahead to any segments i've written uh, running times in the show post and that i think should turn up in the podcast description as well uh, first we'll talk avalon and a little bit of its production background followed by our review and discussion of the film uh, there will be a break uh, after that, small musical break, and we'll do the same for Skycrawlers. Essentially, production background, a small bio on writer Hiroshi Mori, uh, whose book, uh, Skycrawler, is based on, uh, followed by our review and discussion of the film. And then we're out of here. Uh, we actually have an announcement at the end of the show what I intend to cover next, because, again, this is the Oshi finale. So let's get into it. Avalon from 2001, a plot from IMDb. In a future world, I should read it in a trailer man voice, you know, because it sounds like in a future world, young people. <laughs> but, but I won't. War uh, never changes. 
they probably did a US trailer that was was very dramatic. <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't find it actually. I could only find the international trailers and the Japanese trailers. So, so. Oh, no, mm. uh, but anyway, in the future world, young people are increasingly becoming addicted to an illegal and potentially deadly battle simulation game called Avalon. When Ash, played by this is uh, when it comes time to pronounce a Polish name, Malgorzata Foremniak. That's good enough. As, uh, when Ash, a star player, hears of rumors that a more advanced level of the game exists somewhere, she gives up her loan aways and joins a gang of explorers. Even if she finds the gateway to the next level, will she ever be able to come back to reality? I think it's a fair plot, even though it's a very like, standardized yeah, trailer man style plot. Uh, but uh, there you go. Background on the production, uh, Oshi got his regular key crew involved in this Polish language live-action production, such as writer Katsu Nori Ito and composer Kenji Kawai, who apparently, I don't know, does Kenji like work with everybody akin to Morricone, like does tons of movies with everybody, or is it like exclusively working with Oshi or something, do you know that? Uh, he's done soundtracks for other directors for sure, but, um, you know, he's, um, I mean, to me, like his his work is very distinctive as far as like um you know he there's you know just like every artist they have their way of doing things and their method and style so you know I think he's of course best known for his work uh, with Ushi uh, if not also his own uh, um, uh, solo work right uh, so he got involved uh, but a lot is still different in terms of production here because again I mentioned Polish language earlier and indeed it is in that language but not. Japanese actors and actresses being forced to tackle another language for artistic reasons. That happened in Oshi's Assault Girls. And there's a reason we're not covering that movie. That movie was garbage. Dear Lord, did you ever see Assault Girls or you avoided it because you knew it was hated or something? Well, just kind of a title sort of kind of... Kind of basically repelled me. Yeah, <laughs> it was it's some online uh, game kind of uh, movie as well, and all the poor, I'm sure, great Japanese actors had had to speak English almost all throughout, and it's not fair, I think, to just uh, tackle them with something they're not comfortable um, doing. It was uh, that was one of the reasons why Assault Girls was embarrassing, but it was just crap. So well, uh, that subject is going to come up a little in uh, Skycrawlers which has some English dialogue in it. Too. Exactly. That, that, that was actually fun, just a small tangent. I saw it in English a few months ago on Netflix just to familiarize myself with it, and then I saw it in Japanese, and so that was surprising to me. I didn't know that was the artistic choice um, for the original track. But anyway, uh, back to Avalon. It has a Polish cast led by Malgor Zata Foremniak as the main character of Ash. You also wonder, I wonder, if she had such freedom uh, and didn't need to answer to many local voices or investors in Japan in terms of like making this accessible for the local audiences. Um, you wonder if there was like a tug, <laughs> tug, tug, tug war back and forth in terms of you got to make it in Japanese, no, I'm making it in, making it in Polish. Um, if it was, then like the compromise was the fact that I think it played largely in Japanese uh, with a Japanese dub uh, in Japan. Uh, but I actually like the fact that it got made this way. It's sort of inspiring to see a creator being able to go his or her way to experiment, you know, and uh, you never know if that's going to pan out or not. And um, and a lot, therefore, based on uh, all of that, rests on you, the creator, on Oshi. So um, right. it's interesting. I mean, with production, IG is so heavily involved in that. I don't know if they have, if they, therefore, are at the top of the chain, so to say, in terms of making the decisions or not. So, 
Yeah, well, since it's a co-production, my thought is that uh, it was uh, the film was basically produced as an international production, with keeping in mind that it wouldn't play to one audience or another specifically, but to you know a wider audience. So, you know, actually, um, if you're a collector, for example, you'll know that this film has probably about five or six different editions. Yeah. You know, a Polish language edition, one with uh, English, uh, one with Japanese dub, you know, various subtitle uh, variations. And there are also little variations within each edition. So, for example, there's an English edition that doesn't have much narration in it as another edition. So my guess is that possibly the film, at least in uh, English-speaking countries maybe hit the festival circuit, and then they realized that the audience didn't quite get follow the film as well as they thought they would, so they added in a little more um, uh, narration or voiceover, I should say. Um, so, for example, the version that I watched, which is on Netflix US, uh, is an edition that has um, has that voiceover in it that basically is exposition um so to speak and i heard that there's a uk version that has even further exposition in it wow. uh, by a voiceover which is kind of interesting because i'm thinking well she's kind of talking throughout the whole movie so <laughs> I, i'm not too sure how much more you could add so there are different additions i think to uh sort of reflect that it's a you know a co-production between a couple of countries who hope that the film will catch on in other regions of the earth yeah, for sure, and that makes sense. That often happens. It's not just uh, something that this movie got uh, got for good, for better or worse. I've only seen it sans narration. I have the Australian DVD. Uh, the Australian DVD that claimed that this was the first live-action movie from Oshi, but they <laughs> kind of missed the fact that there's some earlier stuff. In there. And the worst thing is that um, I'm not too sure if they originated that that particular uh, bit of misinformation, but I saw that on other websites too. Wow. It's not hard. It's not hard to look up. It's not like Red Spectacles. It's this obscure movie that was just, that was discovered last week. Yeah, I'm I'm not too sure what what they were thinking. Maybe they thought that well, this audience that we're going for is not going to care about stuff that's dubbed in Japanese. So let's just consider this the first one. Don't you know? try and rationalize it. It's just an error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm just yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to. It's a fuck up, is what it is. But anyway, this was co- indeed was co-produced by um, uh, a Polish company. Was involved. It was filmed mostly in Wrocław, Poland. Sorry for the pronunciation. Uh, Oshi mentioned in an interview in Daily Yomiuri that there was never any consideration using a Japanese cast, so uh, the, the freedom was uh, there definitely. Uh, his vision of the movie matched a European feel, uh, so he was um, considering shooting in the UK or Ireland, but ultimately found what he was looking for in Poland during the location scouts. And uh, not only did he get to go with his artistic vision, like to a place uh, he thought. Uh, like the quite extensive digital manipulation of surroundings would serve his vision best, but he had good cooperation uh, as well. You know, he was lucky. He uh, uh, was lucky in that regard. Uh, the Polish armed forces lent equipment such as tanks and attack helicopters to the production without any additional fees, essentially. So it was a good choice in that regard as well. Yeah, I was really surprised they had such a good. Um, they, have a- they had access to those uh, kinds of. Um that kind of machinery and stuff. 
at first I thought it was CG. I was thinking, wow, that's really good CG. I'm like, wow, no, that's those are real tanks and real helicopters. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. that's that's pretty impressive. And I think that's a to me that's a kind of a feather in the cap for the film is that you know there's enough. I mean, there is CG, but there's enough realism to make it to make everything seem very. Uh, you know, on point, uh, visually speaking. Definitely, definitely. An, an organic feel in a, in a simulated environment, which is a, a cool, uh, cool balance. Uh, Oshi has declared an admiration for post-war Eastern Bloc cinema as his main inspiration, particularly the works of Anjay Waida, director of such films as, I'm not familiar with him, so I'm trusting this is right, director of such films as Generation, uh, 1954, and Canal from 1957. And uh, as uh, info out there suggests that uh, the name of Oshi's protagonist may be a playful reference to the title of uh, Waida's third feature, Ashes and Diamonds, from 1958. But uh, my research also indicates that it might be a tongue-in-cheek jibe at the current direction of anime at the time, because Ash is apparently also the name of one of uh, Pokemon's human trainers. Right, yeah. I had that in mind when I first heard the name. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Isn't that the protagonist for Pokemon also? <laughs> I, I don't know anything in Pokemon. Is that the lead the character that, that you always see uh, uh, who has a... Yeah, the, the lead character. Is Ash like uh, one of the secondary characters in Pokemon? Yeah, uh, he's he's basically the boy that you usually see depicted in like posters and stuff. Right. Yeah, right, so. yeah. yeah I never had an interest in Pokemon myself, so I was never. Uh, me neither, but yeah. you know, I kind of know these things just from having a big interest in video games. Yeah. In general. Uh, all right, it screened out of uh, competition at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, where uh, the movie reportedly was met with medium enthusiasm, and in general, the, um, the Asian box office was not uh, setting records either. It's not really a, a, one of those commercial movies that will set box office records. It was never like destined to that uh, for that. But on the flip side, the film received uh, uh, a handful of awards uh, on the festival circuits, uh, such as for cinematography at the 2001 Catalonian International Film Festival in Spain, and Best Film at the Sci-Fi London in 2002. It received limited release in North America with uh, Miramax uh, subsequently handling the DVD. And uh, this is um, uh, some repetition of what John was referring to earlier. Uh, this has an audio track uh, with added narration to make the movie a bit more clearer. Uh, and that uh, might be a good thing, might not be a good thing. Do, without going into detail now in terms of reviewing the movie, do you think it's a good thing or is it overdone? I would say that it wasn't intrusive. Right. Uh, there were times where I was thinking to myself, okay, we're going into our, a little bit of an exposition dump here. But it wasn't, it didn't make the film drag any, I thought. So they didn't do like uh, Ash riding on the train, like, oh, I always ride alone on the train. And when I get home, <laughs> I meet my it's dog. <laughs> it's it's maybe not that bad. Right, it, good. It, it, it can sort of veer into that territory a little bit, but I never thought it was like I said, too intrusive. Um, I'd like to see the film without the uh, voiceover. It, 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 it works. I, I, in my mind, it does work. Yeah, uh, it's not. Uh, some minor things aren't clear, but not uh, in an overall sense at all. Um, apparently, their DVD does have the option to watch it without the narration, but apparently that DVD, uh, the US one, they only had one set of subtitles, and this was with the narration. So if you you mm. you, you will watch it si with silence and still have subtitles going on, which is um uh, yeah. That, that, now that sounds pretty obnoxious. Yeah. yeah, it could have been done. I mean, uh, a simple delete 
and they're <laughs> saving on a set of subtitles done. Um, apparently, the UK DVD uh, rectifies this situation in terms of subtitles. So, um, um, but we're saying all of this because uh, the point is the movie is very available uh, in the various versions, including on Netflix US, so you can stream it. And I have the Eastern Eye uh, Australian DVD that I'm not sure it's in print or anything, but that has uh, no narration. So it's uh, uh, more of the uh, festival version or maybe original version if you want to be. Uh, uh, picky about it, I don't know. Uh, we'll link to a site that actually uh, go, goes into the different uh, versions of Avalon in a lot, lot more elaborate and eloquent way than we can. And, and it's ninesisters.org. So uh, check that link out. And uh, by now, uh, there's also a Blu-ray edition available in Japan with English subtitles, but comes with this heavy but standard Japan, uh, Japanese Blu-ray price of uh, about 70 uh, US dollars. And it's, uh, it's, it does have a good booklet and it's a nice packaging, but it's not deluxe or anything. It's uh, standard pricing. Yes, yes, yes. In Japan, not only are DVDs and Blu-rays expensive, but added to that, anime in general is expensive. So that's a unfortunately very standard price yeah but uh, hopefully it looks good and uh, that, I, I would guess that's a version without the narration just going by instinct uh, uh, okay uh, talking a little bit about the game Avalon that uh, was created for the movie uh, Oshi described that game as military RPG uh, uh, so it mixes elements of the role playing game and the first person shooter um, and uh, in the game they utilize real firearms uh, such as semi-automatic pistols uh, but also borrows from the wizardry role-playing game series that Oshi played extensively uh, during uh, a few years in the 80s when he was unemployed. Um, I'm not an RPG fan at all. Personally, did you know of the wizardry series uh, by room or did you play it? You remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. I played it a lot uh, during the uh, Apple II days. <laughs> this was back in uh, the... Uh... Gosh, early 80s, I guess it was. Yeah, it was not a console game, kids. This was uh, very basic. Well, actually, you know, the funny thing is that uh, the series uh, Wizardry became really popular in Japan. You know, I mean, I guess that's reflected in, you know, she having played it. Mm -hmm. And it actually reached um, the consoles at one point. In fact, I think it was released here uh, in the U.S. at least uh, on the uh, Super Nintendo. Um, I think there were two editions of the Wizardry series. Um Unfortunately, it's uh, the series is kind of uh, I, I don't know if they're actually t they've completely abandoned the series or not. Um, there are kind of uh, retro editions of the game available um, on uh, places like Steam, if I remember correctly. But um, it's a little sad because you know Wizardry is basically you know the roots of of uh, video game RPGs, you know, and uh, does it predate Final Fantasy Devil? Oh yes, yes, very much so. In fact, I would say that the people who you know created Final Fantasy were probably influenced by Wizardry themselves. Um, uh, the thing being, though, is that the style of game that uh, Wizardry is is sort of outdated, so that might be part of the reason why um, it's not as popular anymore, or it's, I guess, considered you know retro. I should say. Yeah. It's hard to like break, uh, like break through with a new. An old IP, and you uh, updated IP in a market that is dominated by Final Fantasy to that extent, um, or, or a market that's crowded. I mean, the Japanese market there uh, and the RPG genre is uh, still very popular, I gather, in Japan. So maybe it's hard to just re resurrect it and uh, automatically gain success uh, based on nostalgia. 
Yeah, I think, well, the game industry in general is pretty, uh, is a little bit on the depressed side in uh, Japan as it is, but, um, you know, Wizardry had a pretty long run. I mean, it had at least nine or ten uh, uh, editions. I, I have to sort of look it up to really know, but, uh, you know, it's not like it was want for, um, for any kind of, you know, uh, new editions or not. And there is actually a uh, Wizardry Online, which is, um, you know, an MMO, so, you know, a multiplayer RPG, I guess I should say, uh, to clear that up. But, yeah, there were um, there were nine different uh, Wizardry games, the latest being uh, back in 2001. So, right, okay, so it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it was not totally abandoned in the late 80s, 90s then, okay. Right, right, right. It went, it went on pretty long. Uh, furthermore, on on the game, the like RPG reference is more like um, in Avalon, the game experience points essentially. So it's uh, it's not right. a wizard; they they don't need wizards or anything in the in the Avalon game. So that's the kind of the main influence, I suppose. Right. But they, there's also um, I should mention, we should also mention, excuse me, that uh, they each of these players has like a card which basically contains. It's like I guess you could say it's an ID card, but it's basically their game avatar in it. Basically contains all of their like all the experience points, all their stats are contained in this card as well as you know the, any money that they've uh, gained or points along the way. And I thought that was kind of interesting that you know when it when it when that card is used, you know you can see it appears on the screen to the viewer, and you can see the the character's avatar as well as their stats. You know, very role playing game like. Yeah, you know? that's true. Very much true. Uh, they play this, this game wearing uh, huge uh, headsets and uh, and they, they immerse their senses in the game world uh, uh, within uh, via this tech and the design of the uh, headset and the share installation was apparently influenced by the French, uh, the cult French sci-fi short uh, short film La Jete or uh, or Vigetti or, or Vigetti. Uh, and I know we spoke about during episode one uh, of this series as an inspiration in general for Oshii's career this particular film. Um, and as an interesting first, apparently, this movie features the appearance of lag, a gameplay error due to network transfer slowdown, often encountered in online games. And there's a scene or two where this uh, makes a particular battle um, decisive, like uh, so someone gains uh, uh, the upper hand by uh, through lag. Essentially. Right. So it's a, a minor little thing to take note of. Um, Avalon is uh, also, as we well know in the movie, they are not shy about this, also connected um, to The Legend of King Arthur. Uh, the, uh, I don't know too much about this, so I had to look it up. Essentially, um, the Battle of Kamlan is reputed um, to have been the final battle of King Arthur in which he either died or was fatally wounded. Uh, fighting his enemy Mordred, and subsequently he was taken to the island of Avalon to heal, uh, or taken to the island of Avalon as a fallen warrior. Um, and it's also said to be the place where uh, King Arthur's sword Excalibur was uh, forged. Yeah, the addition of that uh, story that I've always heard is that that uh, the Battle of Mordred basically. Um, fatally wounds Arthur, so he's taken to the island to recover, and he... It seemed to be a few different... Uh, when I read research, they didn't seem to be definite. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of odd that I guess there are variations on this story, but, you know, basically what... You know, the story, again, that, that, I, that I'd heard, um, you know, as a child was, you know, he gets... He's healed by... Um, 
what's her name? Morgana, is it? I don't know. I only know King Arthur for the Monty Python movies, <laughs> which doesn't <laughs> help at all. <laughs> but what happens is he's, he's healed, and then he's given this crown. I forget what it's called, the crown of chaos or something like that. And it's placed on his head by accident. Mm-hmm. But basically what that does is that uh, causes him to forget where he's from. Right. So he becomes like a permanent denizen of that island and dies there that way. So, again, there are so many variations. Uh, there are at least two variations on this story, probably many more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the end, Avalon is the name of that island. Yeah. Okay, so we're at the stage where we're going to discuss and review the movie for a little bit. And as you might remember, John, uh, if you can uh, summarize the movie in a, like a short, bite-sized way first, so we'll know your general opinion first before we go in-depth. So a quick like or dislike for Avalon, if you will. I would say, actually, at least of the um, live-action films that we've watched of Oshis in this series, that this is probably uh, my favorite of his. I agree, um, I agree. I think the film is a lot more streamlined. Um, there's less reference to other things going on in some, you know, anime anime world of his or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, I think some of the problems I remember having with some of his older films, uh, the excuse me, some of the other films that we watched of his were that there was reference to some other. Uh, some other thing that he had done that I didn't really get, you know? So this, at least this film feels more compartmentalized. So it feels like, you know, he made this film in this world uh, for this world to just exist on its own rather than have some reference to other things. Like we talked, talked about the, in some of the other films, we, I remember we talked about the touchy gooey, um, the, uh, the, uh, was it the, what did we say it was in English? The like the the eating champions or whatever it was. Yeah, it was. I don't know what the what deal was. They they had to, the advantage. Uh, the advantage in that world was that they could eat uh, at eat standing up or some crap. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, like, right. See, see, it was like it was so bizarre, you know, to talk about. That's not like a was, fool mentioned it. Like they can eat standing up. They're the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I just thought that was like. Uh, you know, and we're, when we were talking about you know those other live action films, I thought it was just sort of like a bizarre sort of entry into the yeah. films that could have been funny, but it was mostly fr- frustrating back then, which Avalon is uh, is not. Uh, right, much. right, right. And I think you know because it's a co-production that and it's created for a wider audience that that's you know that's part of the reason why that it's more streamlined and there's more again of the world uh, acting on. Uh, at, the world as its own entity, uh, you know, in, reflected in the film, you know. Yeah. But um, another thing I liked about it was that, um, you know, as I mentioned, the visuals, you know, you know, there's a good fusion of, you know, CG and real life things going on. Um, and surprisingly, I actually um, quite enjoyed the acting. Um, at first, I kind of cringed because, you know, I mean... Like every, like many other, you know, somewhat closed-minded Americans, you know, kind of cringed a little at the at the um, at the actress's voice um, because it sounded like she was not really. It didn't sound natural for her to to speak in English, you know. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I, I really kind of got into it. You know, I think it was just a matter of 
accepting the world itself rather than accepting that she was speaking a language that possibly she didn't use very much, you know. So I think that was the barrier for me to get over. You know, yeah, just yeah, accept- yeah, yeah. They they drop a few lines of English every now and again, like gaming language and what have you. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, before we go on, I'm uh, just uh, gonna state my opinion really quick. It's not sure. For, I like it. Uh, I, I like it a lot. Even it's not the easiest. I, I find it hard to say exactly why. I mean, I find it immersive, and uh, sometimes finding something immersive is uh, sort of abstract too, that uh, you don't know exactly what it is. You can't verbalize it. But I, I can to a fair degree. There's you know going from the comparison Telling creation of Oshis and the production of this online game that moves into the slow passages in between uh, of uh, Ash's uh, very like dull life, if you will. That's a very one-note life, and uh, and uh, the main drive of uh, her trying to excel in levels and XP. And uh, it's uh, what I like about certain Oshi movies is that it it isn't clear where it's going because it's not like. Uh, cliche templates that are being used here it doesn't signal way ahead of time what it's doing but that's never frustrating i i, I was on board with okay where is it going where is it going and i the, the like hints that i dropped along the way uh, made me like slowly put the puzzle together which means it isn't frustrating not knowing yeah, yeah not knowing where exactly it's going and uh, I, I was on board um with avalon pretty much all the way it's more ch- it's a bit challenging towards the end but uh, i it's also also pretty simple to be honest uh, so if you uh, when you break it down well you know you use the word immersive and i i sort of agree you know reflecting what i said i think what really makes it immersive is that the film has a really good mood and tone to it you know um it's not it doesn't go off in some sort of you know i mean it, it's a fantasy world you know very different from ours alternate reality type of thing you know but it doesn't go off in something that's so you know, bizarre or or surreal, you know. Mm-hmm. It just maintains a really good mood. Almost, I don't want to say it's quite a noir, but it, I think it sort of falls in that territory every once in a while. Sure, sure. Uh, it's nothing, it, it, it's not too bad to sort of say simplify it by mentioning noir or anything. Uh, so, so I agree. Uh, I want to know... Um, not on the subject of noir, but uh, this was made in 2001, and uh, the theme here is um, that the world uh, is sets up the world uh, with uh, players that are obsessed with online games. And I don't know if 2001 was a. Do you remember if that was a? We was multiplaying like, like crazy back at that time. Or were, 2001. Or, oh yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Because I, I sometimes lose uh, track of when certain like uh, trends, if you will, start because the time moves so fast, and it's 13 years ago now. Right. Yeah. I mean. I think, you know, the big online push was back in probably the mid-90s. Yeah. You know, okay, stuff yeah. like, um, uh, I can't think of anything. Well, right well Doom and Quake, I suppose. And yeah, Doom. Doom, Quake, Duke Nukem 3D, that kind of stuff. But stuff like, for example, like Ultima Online, which is one of the earlier MMORPGs, that came out in the late 90s, I believe. Right. I think it was maybe 97 or 98, because I remember a friend of mine, I was living in Japan, 98, a friend of mine was was playing um, Ultima Online, and I thought it was like, wow, you can play with all these people, you know, wow, that's unbelievable. But by that time, I think uh, massive, both massive and arena-style multiplayer games were pretty much 
the thing. So, but 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 on the flip side, I don't know how much uh, by now people make a living doing this, which is what the movie also says that they, these are uh, people are obsessed with it, but they're also gaining uh, uh, they're making money from this, they're gaining a name, and uh, they're making a living for themselves. And I think that's increasingly relevant today. Uh, so obviously, there are people making ton well. I wouldn't say tons of money, but they're making a living uh, tour, uh, participating in tournaments for, uh, you know, StarCraft tournaments or maybe RPG, <laughs> RPG tournaments as well, and certainly shooter tournaments. Uh, so if uh, if it predates that uh, trend, then uh, good, good on the movie. But it's uh, it's interesting that it's um, it, it seems uh, very relevant despite being very fa- fantasy-like in nature. All right, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and uh, obviously, it's still, uh, the online game is more high-tech, obviously, because it's wired into your brain, essentially. And uh, if it comes with this physical and medical consequences uh, playing the game, actually, I mean, if, you're, um, if you exit the game in a particular way, you essentially become a vegetable. Uh, you become one of the unreturned, as the subtitles say on my version, and it's uh, one of the, the core plot is uh, a form, about it from a team member, too. Uh, being one of the unreturned, and he's uh, just a shell uh, by now when they visit him in the real world. So uh, uh, we're not quite there yet, where where we are, it's not virtual reality yet, but uh, it's. Um... But virtual virtual reality is now making you know some pretty decent inroads, you know. With yeah, yeah. For a while yeah. in the 90s, it was it seemed like uh, oh my god, are we going here? Then it was quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dead quiet for a long time. But you know, recently we have things like the Oculus Rift and. Sony's coming out with something for the PlayStation, um, for the PlayStation system now. So you know that I don't think we're going in the direction of Avalon, but uh, I wouldn't immerse myself in in that game for a million dollars if that was a risk. You know, life is not that dull, not yet anyway. Uh, but 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 I like that Oshi can he is, he did this kind of in Ghost in the Shell too. He catches us with the action first, but then goes quite. Quiet. There's silence. Uh, so, so obviously the movie opens in, in the urban battlefield, you know, amidst European architecture, and all of this is really alluring and eye-catching. But one of the slight oral cue is here: why it's not this pumping action movie. Kenya Kawai's score is very somber during this opening urban battlefield where a particular mission is clinched and Ash is uh, her XP is going up and what have you. So, um, I, I like that Oshi. Does that, but he, um, the the transition to sort of the main mood of the film is uh, is excellent. I think I, I think uh, to have both is not a um, you know it's not fooling us into thinking it's an action movie. I think, uh, but but I think it's a clever device to catch us first with the action, but then when when offline, then it's all quiet and there's no people around. Either. It seems like all people are watch either playing the game or watching the game on uh, big screens. Yeah, which is um, not unlike what we're having today either, you know. Spectator sport, right? Exactly. Uh, there's some World War II imagery here, too. Uh, it, it seems like one of the maps in the opening uh, opening scene in that particular mission is uh, a World War II, World War II style of map because we get um, bombing imagery akin to something you see in old uh, war movies, old, uh, old movies uh, shot during bombing missions, or what have you. Uh, which connects a little bit to uh, Oshi's uh, style, uh, type of design in uh, going back to Cabell Saga with the uh, World War II, II imagery in terms of the costume design and obviously using uh, weapons from that time as well. So the connection is still there, but as you said, Avalon is still contained within itself, 
the connections doesn't require you to like check out the Kerberos saga to even get half of Avalon. I think it's uh, it is contained after all is said and done. But but anyway, I, I wanted to ask you uh, this uh, this very digital image that the style uh, of uh, very brown and decolorized uh, hues or what have you. Um, does it work for you, the, the overall visual style, or does it? Uh, is it overdone at any point? You think? I think there's a couple things I want to say about that. Um, one is that um, you know adding to the mood of a, of the film and adding to you know the overall tone. I think you know that's probably the probably the perfect color scheme. I think you know the I would say the palette's kind of almost in the um, sepia tone, but a little lighter. But funny enough, that's the same sort of um, color palette that a lot of uh, games use nowadays, you know, games like, you know, Call of Duty, you know, there's a joke in the video game industry about, you know, a lot of these, uh, we call them brown shooters, you know, which is basically these first person shooter games that use the same sort of brown, yellow, dark brown, green uh, side of the color palette only, you know, so it's kind of funny, again, you know, we're talking about Avalon, the film being somewhat ahead of its time as far as, you know, thinking goes. And, you know, even the color scheme to a degree was also ahead of its time. Um, you know, even, uh, even though she failed at it later, because, uh, this was the color scheme of Ghost in the Shell 2.0, uh, at times. All right. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was, yeah, to me a little, yeah, a bit overdone, uh, if I remember correctly commenting. But, um, I, th- I think, uh, the color palette does add to the overall tone of the film. You know, certainly there's a lot more contrast than if it was in color. And there are color scenes in the film, you know, later on, which are actually shot very quite well. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're vibrant, obviously. We, we go yes. from that to uh, big, big colors. Uh, I also like that this uh, fantasy world is not this um, Metropolis-style uh, future either. It's a very contemporary look uh, that's only kind of stylized through the cinematography choices, you know. So, uh, uh, she isn't, uh, you know, having flying cars and shit <laughs> in, in this movie. So I think that that's a wise choice as well because it, it's not a movie and environment that needs to be a futuristic all throughout, you know, the game is definitely very sci-fi, obviously, uh, because we're not there yet. But uh, otherwise, I, I like uh, offline means that the world is doesn't need to draw attention to itself as such. But it looks good, though. I mean, a lot of it is uh, obscured because of the lighting uh, scheme, but it looks good. Uh, her riding on the uh, tram uh, uh, back uh, back and forth, you know, from home back to the game and so forth. Uh, I don't know. It's a uh, this is recognizable, like imagery of just still imagery set to music in certain Oshi films, and uh, when it works, it kind of is that keyword again, immersive, contemplative in some way. Yeah, I think, and I think you could say also, you know, very lonely, you know. Yes. Um, before we get to, uh, well, I have to minor funny notes, if you will. Uh, I'll, I'm impressed that um, in this future you need. Um, Ash anyway needs a four row long password to log into her own, her own computer. <laughs> she's typing away like oh, one row, two rows, three <laughs> rows. Like she's got a memory like you read about. <laughs> yeah, I know. She must have a password. It must be like a paragraph or something. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, again, that's again sort of reflecting, you know, being ahead of its time because look at now, um, you know, we were just hit, you know, again, we're, we're a little dating ourselves and hopefully you're not listening to this like you know a decade later but um you know we just had the um the heartbreak um 
I don't think you can call it a virus, but the bug uh, that's caused a lot of people to contemplate, you know, well, you know, should I make a longer password for my, you know, eBay, my Google, my Yahoo account, you know, and maybe this is the direction we're going in where we have to start using, you know, paragraph long uh, passwords, you know. At least people change your password from password to something else. Yeah. Password one two three <laughs> works every time. Don't know why. Don't know why my account got hacked so easily, but there you go. And of course, we get a, an, an image of um, a Bassett Town in this movie, and therefore a live Bassett Town. And uh, boy, is it kind of pleasant. That, that's Ash's like company in this world. Oh, she she's a single woman and all of that. Without spoiling it too much, because we we won't. Uh, do the only thing I never got in the movie is the fact that. Uh, the Bassett Hound at one point disappears, and the uh, books that Ash has taken out from the library on the Legend of King Arthur are blank. Um, so, is it possible? Do you have a take on that? Is it possible that that take is spoiler free? Because I think that's the only thing I never got. This happens in the offline world. I personally think the dog disappearing is just a way for them to move the story along. Okay, uh, okay. You know, to give her some sort of reason to start looking into the film's Avalon, so to speak. Um, yeah, maybe they're, they're clearing out her world because uh, the theme for Ash is she, uh, she wants to level up and maybe it's for deeper reasons other than just being the best. Because right. uh, the, world, the online world is a bit more alluring than the offline right. world, I suppose. I mean, yeah, as like a, um, as a parallel, you know, it's almost like the situation, you know, I mean, we're both, you know, martial arts film uh, fans, you know, it's almost a situation of, you know, like, you know, the the evil dojo coming in and killing the good dojo's teacher, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what's the point of that? Well, it's to move the story along, you know, to give them a reason to start, you know, on their quest, you know, rather than just sit around and practice all the time. I mean, she already had motivation at that point because she was looking for... um I forgot the guy's name, but uh, she was looking for their uh, former team member. Uh, Murphy in the subtitles I had. Yeah, Murphy, right. Mm. Thank you. Funnily enough, uh, like uh, maybe that's the point too. In an online game, they use English names essentially. You know, right? Uh, yeah. Ash and Murphy and uh, other other names, I'm sure, popped up that are more English rather than Polish. Yeah, and I would say that that's a reflection of you know video game you know um, handles, right? Because I. Probably every uh, video gamer has a handle that he or she uses all the time, and they're known as that in you know video games. Like, you know, I'm sure I have a lot of friends on uh, my various uh, you know video game uh, travels who only know be know me by my handle, you know, rather than my real name. Stud Stud five three one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, it's password one two three. Yes, that's right. Still true. can't figure out why people are getting into my email. Um, right. But the about the books, I was a little puzzled about that too. I mean, there's a lot of things I, I thought of, you know, like is it her world is fading away, you know? Is it, you know, the is it that the world they live in is so oppressive, you know, a la, for example, Fahrenheit four fifty one mm-hmm. that you know, there are books that exist but they don't exist necessarily to give information. They just exist to, for example, show that show your wealth or opulence in the world you know Mm -hmm. because 
at one point there is um, a character who visits Hash. I believe it's uh, the thief character, maybe. Uh, yeah, the thief or the bishop. Uh, I mean, he referred. Uh, yeah, the I, I that was his status, and he was called thief. Uh, but uh, the, the, because b- bishop is a higher rank uh, in Avalon. Right, but he visits her, um, and he comments. He says, "Oh, so you have cigarettes and alcohol and real food, you know." Real food meaning like meat and vegetables and not like this goopy oatmeal stuff that they usually eat. And then he says, you have books too. And then, you know, so he's basically, you know, trying to give us the impression that, you know, she's really done well for herself, you know, but in fact, these books don't have anything in them. You know, they're just a status symbol, you know. Not too bad if it actually is symbolic, to be honest. It, it, that sort of stuff could frustrate me, uh, but uh, be, being symbolic of her world failing, you know. Uh, but uh, because they don't make a big fuss about it. Oh my God, where's the dog? Oh my God, the books are empty. It, it's right, never, right. never any huge uh, loud noise uh, noise the movie makes in terms of that. Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting that. Um, I'm assuming this was done maybe for the Japanese audience, but uh, the. At one point, she goes to a, I guess it's like a, you could say it's a library or a book refinery of some sort to, to get some books to research. But the book tiles are in Japanese. Um, they're not in English. So I thought that was kind of an unusual choice. And I'm not too sure exactly why they did that other than possibly just to give the Japanese audience, um, something uh give them a little hint as to you know what's happening in the story yeah much like the you know the additional voiceover um in the u.s and uk editions of the dvd for example you know here's a question uh, i made uh when i saw this i could uh because oshi has made a sort of living merging live action and animation sometimes in one for various various degrees of success mostly not successful uh when I saw this movie, I could totally see this movie being an anime as well. Oh yeah, for certain. And I would be happy to see an anime version of it because I think it, it, it would be, it would, maybe it would be too similar. Like, yeah, that's the same movie, but because his style and language is something that pops up in his better animes as well, mm-hmm. including Skycrawlers. There's a similar quiet style. Right. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I, I think the film. In the end, I mean, I thought I thought the same thing, you know, because there are a lot of like anime-like scenes or visuals that you'd think, oh, that that's something that you know would come up in anime. But in the end, I kind of I'm glad that it's live action because you do very much empathize a lot more with um, with Ash as a as a character. And one thing that's kind of interesting, we've already mentioned it um, as far as you know. Um, Ash being a, an actress or a female, so it never really comes up in the film that she's a female. I mean, there's nothing that you know. I mean, obviously, you know, the choice is there. I mean, she's a, she's a female, and you know, played by an actress, of course, you know. But there's nothing in the film that would point to the need for her to be a female, um, you know, which is kind of I thought somewhat refreshing because. You know, if you have a female protagonist, you know, the first thing that a lot of directors want to do is to point out that it's female, you know, whether in dialogue or visuals, you know, to dress her up like sexy, for example, or yeah. to say like, oh, you know, to emphasize that she's so much more badass than other males. I mean, holy crap, she, she's mostly covered up when she's playing the game, for heaven's sake. So. Right, 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 right. But, in you know, in the film, she's 
technically speaking, more badass than a lot of the other men in the film, but it's never like highly emphasized, you know, like there's never that kind of wink, you know, that a lot of films have like, ha ha, I'm female and I'm badass and I'm sexy, you know, it's, which I thought was kind of refreshing because I, I, again, it's, it's never really, it's never really like a centerpiece for the film that she's female. You know what the other thing is refreshing? That the movie isn't biblical. For once. <laughs> but it is Arthurian, though. It is Arthurian, but that's new for Oshi. You know, it's not the fifth time where King Arthur legend has gone, you know, on repeat. I- I'm sure if you really, really, really tried to dig deep and stretch, you could find something biblical. But, well, normally he's very upfront with it. You know what I mean? Like uh, the passage from this and this. You know? Right, right, right. Uh, and, and we have fun with that. It, it, it works in some instances. I remember in Pat Labor, there, there, there is a. Uh, Good, good merging of the of his uh, biblical references at points, and sometimes it's just uh, a bit too obvious. But uh, it, it, it's it's re- it's refreshing. I mean, it, um, I had to look in a little bit into uh, the Arthurian legend, but the movie at least it essentially says what Avalon is in the beginning. Like it, it's a an island for fallen warriors, and you you can you you, you have that. And I, I I don't know if you uh, sat there and interpret uh, in your version. By the way, it's the um, uh, Avalon uh, Opera subtitle. I assumed it is, yeah. I believe it was. Oh, you, uh, you, you're talking about the end when we actually get to see the. Uh, yeah, yeah, that. But early in the movie, we get uh, maybe half of the opera. Uh, um, you can. Uh, it's playing over certain scenes, uh, and in, on my version, um, it's subtitled. But but at the very end, when the Philharmonic is. Uh, I don't think it was uh, subtitled in my version. Because there, there, there are some like open clues there as well. The, the lyrics as translated are very, um, they, they are partly clear, but partly also there is a mm-hmm. mystery there. And and I have to say, um, that's probably my favorite piece of the Kenji Kawai score. That piece is, yeah, marvelous, gorgeous. especially in the quiet moments and the vocalizing the the female uh, opera singer. I love her uh, sort of a subdued delivery. Uh, right. It's not this uh, <gasps> like the right. impression. Uh, it does go into more intense places that opera, but uh, otherwise it's uh, it's a fantastic immersive little piece. There. Right, it's kind of interesting. At the time, uh, Kenji Kawai was also doing video game scores. Right, that uh, he would do this film too, um, and that you know, of course, at the time this was the '90s, right? So, um, excuse me, this was the early 2000s. So you know, the um, sound technology at the time wasn't as great as it was for films, of course. Uh, in, technically still isn't but uh you know i I think his style is very different uh for this film than of course the the video games he was doing at the time uh i think at the time this must have been probably during the time of the super nintendo is that still around uh Uh, yeah early 2000s yeah because super nintendo i think it trailed off around 97 ish or so but uh, yeah, he was doing stuff for like uh, the Sega Saturn mm-hmm. at the time, so that's like late '90s. But uh, one more thing I wanted to add, as far as you know, there being reference to the uh, Arthurian, uh, um, the Arthurian legend, is that uh, there's at one point Ash uh, logs into the computer, and she's trying to find, if I remember, the location of this uh, Avalon, or she's trying to find more information about how she can get to it. Yeah. And uh, on the login page, there's some Latin that appears. Um, and 
I only took maybe uh, three months of Latin, so my pronunciation is going to really stink. Uh, so those of you who know Latin, you know, maybe uh, you know, turn off or fast forward for a couple seconds as to not uh, have your ears burned. But I be- believe it's Hiklach Arthuris Rech Condam Rech Kufuturis. It's probably not pronounced correctly. Um, it's probably completely off. But basically, that uh, the translation of this is uh, Here Lies Arthur. Um, the the king of before and the king of the future. Mm-hmm. I think that's very little translation. There's probably a more poetic translation of that. But again, it's a reference, and um, it's a reference to. I don't know if this is a spoiler. You might want to cut this out, Ken. But it's a reference to the character who Ash is seeking to. Right. Yeah. yeah it, it it's vague enough, and uh, and and that kind of brings me to a, a, like a question in general. Uh, it the movie is um, it is understandable very much so, but it is also um, sort of um, it is challenging. I mean, uh, the appearance of uh, the the ghost, the little girl, and what she what her part is in all this it is explained. But uh, overall, do you think it's uh, an easy movie to follow based on what she presents us with? Um, you know, you don't need to do any additional research to get what the entire ending was about, you know what I mean? Uh, or or how, what is your take on the clarity or, or, or lack of? You know, it, you know. speaking of the ghost, um, I, to me, again, I, I thought this was just another device to get the story moving, you know? I mean, certainly, you know, in the film, at least in the subtitles, uh, or not the subtitles, excuse me, in the English language version, they refer to it as the key to Avalon. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And if you wanted to make a direct parallel to, you know, the Arthurian legend, I don't think there was a ghost, so to speak. You know? So I I kind of took that as being just like, okay, let's move this along and how do we do this? Well, let's... It's quite an alluring image, I think, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This girl obviously appearing uh, very much more, if you will, colorized than the, the environments um, uh, in the, in the, uh, compared to the environments uh, uh, she's in there. Uh, um, so I, I do like it, but uh, I, uh, overall, I think it's a, it is a very clear movie, even though you know we won't say what the very ending is like. But the very ending, you might pose a question to yourself: What happened there? But over, if you really look at it, it is quite clear, and, but not simplified as such either, which, which I think is a balance of she strikes here. Um, I mean, same with Ghost in the Shell. I, I think it's uh, it, it's a talky movie. And you kind of get what it's doing, but that doesn't mean it's not a thinking man's piece, if you will. It, it requires some investment to to kind of take it in. Which is really my final note. I wonder. Uh, I wondered as I watched it, how was this prom? Uh, what is was the promotion like for this? Did they deliberately go for this is an action film? It's like The Matrix, or did they go for a mix of it? And it seemed like if if out of all places, the Japanese trailer is the most action-filled. And then I saw a French trailer that kind of evened out the mood a little bit to represent the movie quite uh, well. Um, and if there ever was a U.S. trailer cut, uh, it was not on YouTube anyways. But I guess it's just hard to pick sometimes how to promote the movie. I don't know if a Ghost in the Shell at the time, in Japan anyway, had this uh, massive campaign where they favored action, you know, revolutionary anime-style action, and then when people sat down in the theater, talky, 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 talky. <laughs> I think I think by the time uh, Ghost in the Shell had come out, possibly, you know, Oshii's 
style, so to speak, uh, has already become known, you know. Um, you know, she sort of stands out among anime directors, you know, mainly because of his style. Um, you know, I was actually reading some of the old, uh, old, uh, Japanese message boards, uh, talking about Oshi, um, and, you know, a lot of people were saying to that effect that, you know, well, it's an Oshi film, so you kind of know what to expect, you know, like something to that effect rather than, you know, emphasizing, uh, how he fits into, um, the anime world kind of more so how he himself is just an individual you know to himself in that world so i thought that was kind of interesting how the conversation turned that way uh, so so i i gather then that there's no like there's few like uh, oshi copies out there therefore that wants to follow uh, w- w- wants to follow in the same trailer or may or if there is that maybe maybe they're, they're not doing it as well at all i don't know well, I don't know. There are a certain number of uh, anime directors who are certainly more um, have more of that artistically bent, you know, way of doing things. Um, you know, not so much commercial directors. I mean, certainly, you know, you can think of people like um, uh, who's the direct director of uh, Perfect Blue, um, Satoshi Kon. Yeah, Satoshi Kon. I was about to say Kon Ichikawa. That's a live action director from the sixties. In 80s, but um, you know, certainly there are directors like him. Uh, and you know, if you look into, for example, um, underground anime or alternative anime, uh, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, you know, non commercial animation, there are a lot of directors who are very much artistically bent in, in that direction. Mm-hmm. But I think um, the way that Oshi came up through the ranks, so to speak, I, I think he's pretty unique. Uh, and I think you have to know what to expect. And I'm sure that, you know, again, anime fans know what to expect with Oshi. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who when they don't know, you know, uh, his MO, so to speak. Uh, those are his initials, MO, get it? <laughs> but uh, who don't know. It took you, you about know, four or five episodes to come up with that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I've been holding it for uh, a year and a half. The finale has it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, I'm going to turn the table right now and we can finish this. But anyway, so if they don't know what LOC is about, they can probably be kind of tricked, you know? I mean, again, you're bringing up, you know, watching these uh, trailers and seeing, you know, how these films are marketed. You know, I can imagine people being like, oh, you know, Ghost in the Shell, it's going to be, uh, you know, robots and, you know, shooting and lots of action you yeah, know even pat labor i think they could tr- so right. say trick an audience so you remember the first movie was quite you know it has had the robot action but it was right. certainly quiet and more of a procedural as you said at the time mm-hmm. yeah yes 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 very much so mm-hmm. uh, my final note really i think the standout sequence in terms of action and special effects is the big sequence with uh, ash and that uh a new party that she joins versus the, as the subtitles say here, a citadel. Uh, that big, 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 I don't know how to describe it really, a big tank really with uh, tons of uh, tons of guns on it. A really cool mixture of obviously CG and, but, but also the way the effects work is that for instance, when someone gets shot, they, they don't, um, they don't do squib work. They do, uh, they disappear. They dissolve. They uh, uh, they get shot into uh, pieces, uh, into square uh, rectangles, and what have you. And really, this uh, artificial 
look as anyone exits the game is uh, I really like and I really the way this the citadel sequence works is a good demonstration of how the effects work uh, go mix of physical but also artificial to kind of make it a really convincing online world you know what I mean so so it's uh, therefore the effects aren't out to be photorealistic and always merge with the environment because as they exit that environment it's supposed to uh, stand out you know what i mean right yeah it's 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 well said that you know um you know the mark of good cg is when you can't notice it but um yeah. i think you know even you know i think this is a good example of i'm assuming fairly low budget cg that works for its time and even now i you know i didn't think it was too too bad i mean no no i i, I think it's damn for the movie i think it's um actually quite near perfect you know what i mean because they, they, there's an art in making cd suitable effects right. work suitable rather than look at what we can do we have the big computers and boom 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 robots uh, which is not compelling. It's more compelling when it's used uh, suitably, you know. And um, sure. the, the examples of that is uh, getting more, more rare and rare as the years go on. You know? Right. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, the fact that we have CG mixed with practical effects and props, you know, you know, makes the film all that much better. It's a it's a good mix of the two that uh, makes the film feel a little more organic. Uh, so really, that's the end of my notes, buddy. Uh, you want to share anything? Um, if, if you if you want to talk the ending, do talk uh, in non-spoiler. But uh, regardless, um, the floor is yours. No, I don't really think I have much more to say. Um, I would certainly recommend the film. Um, it may not be uh, the best of Oshii's work to start with, mm-hmm. but I think it's certainly a good indicator of of what I would say the direction a clearer indicator, I would say, of the direction that he um, wants to go in. Um, I don't know if that's really properly stated, but... Uh, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a cool continuation of what he did in Ghost to the Shell, transferred to live action, I think. Um, in yeah. terms of the style, I think there's a lot to connect to in Ghost to the Shell. So if you saw Ghost in the Shell and liked this, Avalon, for me, is an easy recommendation. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, along with what you said, um, you know, with Ghost in the Shell, a good, I think it's a good snapshot of what Mamoru she is about. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, so we've done availability. We usually do it at the end of it, but uh, as you said, it's um, it's uh, very available, and uh, if you want to invest in uh, in hip Blu-ray formats, you can. Uh, to be honest, the DVD I had, uh, the Eastern Eye DVD, still look, still look pretty good. I mean, DVDs have a tendency to uh, not look as good as the years go by, you know. But th- this one still looks pretty damn good, and I, I'm I'm assuming it's due to kind of the uh, style in the movie. It's um, makes it all kind of uh, foggy and uh, subdued, so sharpness isn't the main idea of the movie <laughs> so maybe the dvd is more forgiving in that uh, that regard uh but go get it uh, you can see it uh, if you have netflix and what have you so it's very available so go get it and uh, we're taking a break and after that we finished off the coverage with our review discussion of the sky crawlers from 2008 uh, so we're ending on an anime note if you will so we'll be right back
Welcome back, and the final uh, review, the final movie of our Oshi coverage is The Skycrawlers from 2008, uh, which is an animated movie and plot. A group of eternally young fighter pilots known as Kildren battle the enemy in dogfights above the clouds. With his only childhood memory consisting of intense flight training, the fearless teenage pilot Yuichi's dogfights coexist with the struggle to find out the past and the fate of the former pilot pilot at the base. When his beautiful young female commander Suito is reluctant to discuss the fate of the pilot that Yuichi is replacing, his curiosity becomes heightened. And uh, there is a bit more to say about the plot, but I want to keep it uh, fairly vague. Um, not a movie you want super spoiled beforehand, that's what I'm saying. Uh, anyway, adapted from the novel of the same name by, Hir- name by Hiroshi Mori, produced by Production IG, and feature- featuring again a Kenji Kawai score, but uh, this time the writer is different. Uh, this time the writer is Chihiro Ito, and um, rather than the usual co- cohort, Katsunori Ito. And uh, this particular Ito's prior credits includes A Closed Diary and Spring Snow, movies that I'm not familiar with. In, in short, John, uh, are they super high-budget known movies, those particular two movies, Closed Diary and Spring Snow? Not that I know of, because I can't really picture <laughs> what those uh, tiles are in Japanese. So that, that's usually an indicator for me. If I know the tiles in Japanese, I know that they're pretty uh, well-known. Right on. Uh, anyway, back to author, Mori reportedly did express that this particular work, Skycrawlers, would be a difficult one for a film to adapt, but gave his consent after knowing Oshi was on board. And Mori has achieved fame for writing mystery novels, among other uh, uh, work, uh, among others, The Perfect Insider, which won him what's called the Mephisto Award in 1996. But he considered himself a craftsman as well, having been an avid model maker since childhood, building race cars, locomotives, airplanes, etc. And Mori also became engrossed in manga in his high school years uh, with uh, the female artist uh, Moto. Hagio serving as huge inspiration. Uh, Moto is also is considered the founding uh, uh, mother of cho- shoujo manga. Manga marketed to female audiences, 10 to 18 roughly. So that was an inspiration for author Mori. Uh, he began to self-publish under the name Mori Muko, uh, producing drawings and illustrations. Then he met his future wife, uh, Subaru Sasaki, at university, and they shared the same interest. This led to a union, and she eventually became his professional illustrator while he was writing manga. Um, something he doesn't do now, although he claims he thinks he's more adept or adept, adept at manga than being a novelist. Um, despite publishing work, such as that the 95-96 debut between 1982 and 2005, Morris studied and specialized in relogy. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, it's a branch of physics that deals with deformation and flow of matter, and eventually become, became an associate professor at the Nagoya University at the age of 31 and received a doctorate of engineering with a thesis on a numerical method for analyzing the flow of viscous plastic. There you go. <laughs> a, a, a man of um, vision, I suppose. Yeah. Renaissance man, I think we could say. Oh, so, yeah, sure, definitely. And despite this advancement, Mori decided not to become further promoted, if you will, as he felt he would lose time to uh, to do research and instead get bogged down in trivial matters and meetings, which is a, a, a stance I respect, I would have to say. 
Uh, eventually, he did uh, resign in 2005 to focus on writing full time, and he was no slouch as a writer. He finished his first novel in a week, despite only getting in three hours of writing time um, a day uh, after a day at the university. So he, uh, he uh, mixed the university work and writing, uh, being a, an associate professor at the time. Uh, and back to the perfect inside is was actually intended to be his fourth piece in a series, but the publisher decided to go with this as uh, his debut work. And uh, he'd been uh, stating uh, several reasons for dabbling in writing, really, jokingly saying that he wanted another source of income for his hobbies, uh, that he, uh, he aimed to be a writer at 40, but the direct cause was apparently that he wanted to impress his daughter, who was a big fan of mystery novels. And uh, or in that genre, he has produced over 30 of uh, of those kind of novels and has dipped his toes in other genres as well, romances, um, as well as poetry, photo books and children's uh, picture books. And um, uh, manga versions uh, for some of his works have been published as well. And uh, if we reach the Skycrawlers, it's actually a series of six novels uh, and represented a detour from the genre Mori is known for. Uh, so out of the gate was the Skycrawler, with uh, the remainder of uh, the works uh, being put out between 2004-2008. And uh, the Skycrawlers was intended to be the last in the storyline, though, and the novel Non But Air opens the story chronologically. But um, the, the Skycrawlers did uh, start, uh, start the series, and apparently there's no real hindrance to read the books in the wrong order. In partic- uh, apparently, you can still follow it, apparently, so, so that's a good thing. Uh, I know you, you just sent a picture of, uh, I'm going to read this book now, The Skycrawlers. Uh, did you, or, or you and, and are you familiar with the author's work in general? You should mention that uh, I did get a copy of the book. It's a Japanese copy. So, I, of course, as I mentioned in earlier podcasts, you know, I can I can speak Japanese and I can read Japanese. But uh, when reading books, I'm very slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I'm reading like websites, you know, no, not a problem. But uh, so I I, um, I just borrowed it like this past uh, Monday or Tuesday, I think it was, and I got through like three pages. <laughs> oh no, that so was not, not enough. Not enough to comment on uh, on the story itself, though it's it seems relatively it seems pretty interesting. I, I've never read any of uh, Hiroshi Mori's work, but mm. uh, you know, as you mentioned, he's famous in Japan as a mystery writer. Um, and I don't think any of his work has been translated into English. Oh, uh, really? So that's the problem, too. As far as I know, yeah. Um, except I guess you could say Skycrawlers vis-a-vis the, the movie is somewhat translated. Uh, 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 I guess you could consider sort of a translated work, if it, excuse me. So it's it's hard for me to comment on him as an author. Um, but I do know of him just because, you know, as you mentioned, he's... Uh, much of a renaissance man in that he has interests that range across um, different fields and is well known in those fields too, which is, you know, equally impressive. Um, So, you know, if, yeah, I guess in summary, I guess we could say he's a bit of a smarty pants. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, All right. The film Skycrawlers was received well by critics. It had a roughly 5.8 million uh, US dollars box office take in Japan. I don't have it in yen right now. Uh, I'm not sure that is good or bad in Japan, but um, regardless, they did send this as the entry. Uh, for the best animated feature uh, for the 81st uh, Academy Awards. Uh, but that same year, apparently, uh, the actual Japan, uh, Japanese entry was uh, Yojiro Takita's Departures, and that eventually went on to win Best Foreign Language Film at that uh, at that year's Academy Awards. 
How, how much again did you say it made? Uh, 5.8 million uh, US dollars, according to my research anyway. For an animated film, no, nah, that's, that's not really that great. It probably right. made, it, I think maybe if there was a ranking, maybe it's somewhere in the top. 75 right right right. yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, it's not a challenge uh, for pokemon let's just say that no 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 uh uh, the skycrawlers did win several awards on the festival circuit again including the 65th um it played at the 65th venice international film festival where it won the future film festival digital award and uh, the film uh, competed officially at the famed uh, Sitges Catalonian International Film Festival, where it won three separate awards here. Uh, the Jose Louis uh, Garner Critic Award, uh, Best Original Soundtrack for Kenji Kawai, and an award given by the, uh, the, the jury, apparently, for where the award was like the best motion picture for a youth audience, which is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, it's also available widely on DVD and Blu-ray in the US, UK, Japan, in Sweden as well. I got the Swedish DVD. Uh, and if you want to go all out, you can buy a 400 US dollar limited edition box from Japan. It looks like crap. <laughs> <laughs> there's a box, there's a plane, there's some like decals, and then there's the Blu-rays. It looks like crap. <laughs> <laughs> the regular one is again 70 plus US dollar, uh, but that one is not subtitled in English, the, uh, the Japanese Blu-ray, so um, uh, you're better off uh, uh, buying uh, buying the Western release, that's way more affordable. Uh, the Netflix uh, instant version is in English only, but that dub is uh, quite alright actually, I've seen it once in English and once in Japanese for this viewing. Also seen as this movie features aerial battles, there was an op to make a video game, and they indeed did. The Skycrawler's Innocent Aces was released for the Nintendo Wii in 2008 in Japan and in North America and Europe two years later. It features new animated cutscenes by Production IG and a version of the plot um, from the movie, but not the movie entirely, I think, yeah, because uh, it's an action game, so to say, only. Uh, it seems like, anyway, uh, Oshie was a special consultant, along with author Hiroshi Mori, and both played and tested a pre-release version of the game, uh, and uh, it went on to score uh, highly with critics, actually. Uh, actually. And, and finally, uh, the background notes, uh, we round them off with a manga series based on the game was serialized in the monthly magazine, Month- Monthly, Comic Blade from November 2008 and onwards. Say, Ken, I wanted to ask. Uh, I want to add one more uh, production note <clears throat> about the screenwriter. Uh, you mentioned that uh, um, that she wrote. Um, she meaning uh, Chihiro Ito. She wrote the Closed Diary and uh, Snowy Love Fall and Spring. Um, actually, she's best known uh, besides for um, for Skycrawlers. I guess you could say uh, she's probably best known in Japan as a screenwriter, at least for uh, a film. Uh, in 2004, called "Crying Out Love in the Center of the World," right? It was a pretty, pretty big hit film at the time. There's no English. I don't think there's an English version of this film out. So right, so. okay, gotcha. Uh, okay, we're at the movie re- movie review. So in short, first, uh, John, before we go uh, a little bit uh, more in depth, um, do you like Skycrawlers or do you hate the Skycrawlers? <laughs> I saw this for the first time just last night. Um, you know, I'm running kind of a tight schedule this week, uh, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to uh, watch things. And I'm really kind of undecided at the moment, just because it's not because it was necessarily good or bad right off the bat. Uh, it's just that I'm still thinking about it as far as 
you know, it's the, it's meaning and, you know, what it's trying to tell us, you know, uh, and there's a lot of interesting in, interpretations that uh, I was reading off the internet uh, uh, after I watched the film. And I, I try, you know, of course, try as I may not to let those uh, interpretations influence me. You know, it did sort of kind of open up this thought of this is a lot more than what we see on the surface. You know, on the surface, I think that if you're just again, if you're a person who's just never seen the Moshi film and just wants, you know, an action oriented anime, this is not going to be for you. It's a very it's a talky film and it's a very contemplative film. Well, welcome to the cinema of Oshi. I mean, that's why it's <laughs> yeah, recognizable. Right, yeah. That's why it's recognizable in a way. It's a, uh, by now I like I recognize this. This is definitely him. Right, right, right. Exactly. We, we, which is why I tend to repeat my will tend to repeat myself as for my opinion. I, I like it, it, but it's not a rousing experience. It's rather quiet, uh, and, and despite knowing the mystery of the movie, like what uh, these pilot children are, we know that quite early in the film. Uh, we, I was quite on board with it. It's a, it's a sort of a hopeless somber film that even two viewings in again, one in English, one in Japanese, I still uh, find it quite um, intriguing. It, it's it's quite interesting uh, without it uh, knocking you over, you know, in your seat or anything. But uh, that's not kind of how it's style, and it doesn't make noise akin to that. Only in the in the action scenes and uh, you know just like avalon it opens uh, with with action you know we got the a um, aerial battle uh, that mixes f- uh, compared to that got them ghost in the shell 2.0 3d cgi mixed with animation and i don't know about you it's noticeable but it's harder to dislike because it seems to fit this movie a little bit better and it, oh, yes. the sky crawlers wasn't something that was done in another way before, and this is a new version of it exactly. done now. So that's why it's uh, chosen style with um, uh, 3D CGI, even buildings sometimes are CGI uh, mixed with uh, rubber reserved animation uh, is a lot better compared to something like Ghost in the Shell 2.0, which uh, was like a year away or the same year as the sky crawlers, I think. Yeah, I mean, I very much agree. I thought the 3D uh, animation very much served the film rather than detracted from it like it did with uh, Goose in the Shell 2.0. But but it's not an easily digestible commercial piece of cinema though, because we we, we know we, we know pretty quickly that something is off in the movie. Uh, they arrive at this base, which uh, brought out some minor flavors of Pat Labor, the the that uh, robot base they had in the middle of nowhere for good reason. I mean they. <laughs> They obviously have big robots there, and, and they, they they need their space. But uh, it's uh, so it's uh, in in a field and a base. Um, you see, people are kind of motionless, emotionless, and mm-hmm. like the chief mechanic, for instance, uh, uh, which will pay off later in the film. And uh, even the the base, uh, the main base, the main hangout is a mansion, and you can and uh, you kind of look at it. What's going on here? Uh, there's something is off. Uh, everybody looks sad and neutral, and uh, and arriving is this uh, teenager that is apparently dominating the skies. There's a very skilled pilot who smokes. So, so there's this several feelings of being off that, to be honest, uh, even two viewings in still intrigue me. It never frustrates me. So, uh, how did you feel about that? Because you obviously didn't know 
anything of the movie before, or did you? As a matter of fact, hear some rumblings way before that. Who, what these what, what these characters are, or, or or was it a clean slate? No, in fact, um, you know, my I had not known anything about this film in advance, and um, you know, I, I hadn't watched it before, certainly. And my only memory of the film, you know, before actually watching it, is that uh, when I was in Japan, I remember seeing the um, the uh, seeing it on opening day uh, at the theaters. Um, it was only at one theater near where I worked, and I do remember seeing the poster and thinking to myself, "Well, this looks like it's going to be an action movie," you know, not knowing, of course, of she at the time. They don't plaster his name and such like bigger than the title on the posters necessarily. Like, uh, it's it, it was you know it's there, it's definitely there, but it wasn't like you know, Mamoru Oshii's Skycrawlers. You know, his name is definitely you know there. Small. No, no, it's not Michael Bay of Japan and such like him. Uh, right. So there you go. <laughs> but you know, as you mentioned, you know the opening of the film, or at least the opening right after the uh, dogfight scene, you know, it's kind of intriguing. And you know, the film overall, I, I think, you know, gave me the impression uh, of um, I don't know if you've seen the film. There's a film as well as, as the book that's based on uh, uh, Never Let Me Go. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, this was a film, I believe it was 2009, uh, but the original story is written by um, Kazuo Ishiguro, who is a um, UK-born uh, Japanese, so I guess you could say I'm a, call him a Japanese Brit. Um, and uh, it's interesting, like, near-future sci-fi film, um, and it's very reminiscent of Skycrawlers in tone and somewhat in theme as well. Mm-hmm. Um but the characters in um, in uh, Never Let Me Go, they kind of also spend their lives as young people, but in a way they are fated to become organ donors. Um, and I don't want to go too much more into the story, uh, mainly because um, you know I don't want to spoil it. Plus, that's not what we're covering. But I thought the film, two films, are very similar, and they have the similar, as you mentioned, a, a malaise to it. You know, the characters are very emotionless. You know, in some way, you know, in Never Let Me Go, because they are sort of heading toward their fate, and it's you know, it's a fate that can't be changed. You know, their own course. You know. But in a, in the same way, you know, Skycrawlers in Skycrawlers, the characters are also heading toward a fate um, that you know they can't escape from, and the only escape is is basically to uh, how can I put it in a vague way, end the game, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're you're right. It's uh, some clues are very clear because we, we kind of find out that these uh, maybe halfway into the film and uh, I, that I don't really care about spoiling because uh, we, we get a feeling that these are possibly you know either androids or they, they are they, these children fighting in the skies they are manufactured because they don't they, they stay they bring such odd statements like in dialogue uh, for instance like uh, Yuichi says I've been flying Mark B since I was born meaning the plane Right. It's like since you were born. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, right. Okay, that that suggests something that uh, he was possibly he's newly made, you know. And they ask uh, where were you stationed before? Station before? I forgot them. And uh, his wingman, one of the, one of the more energetic people at the base, he doesn't make a deal out of it because something is. Uh, uh, everybody knows kind of what this world is about. Uh, that these they are putting up something 
artificial in the skies for reasons that I don't want to say though, because that is a little bit later in the film. Why, uh, why there is uh, like artificial people walking about, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, within this uh, mystery, it's kept afloat well by Oshi and his slow style. You know, when dialogue is happening, dialogue is obviously not something where you have the cam- camera circulate, uh, you know, circling 360 degrees around characters. But Oshi's style is still very recognizable. That we, uh, the camera, so to say stay on characters almost looking uh, into the ground, talking slowly, uh, sparsely. And the animation, therefore, is very sparse. And I, I think, you know, my, my, my summary point within this is that the, it's, the interest and the mystery for me is kept afloat uh, very well uh, throughout the movie. Um, is this something you, you can come to the conclusion of as well, or you're still thinking about, about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Um... I would say that in some ways that the film sometimes is a little too talky. Um, And I I don't want to say that, you know, to substitute. We should put in more action scenes. Mm. But it's almost like um, it's almost like Oshii's walking this fine line between showing and telling, you know. I agree agree with that. There is a late discussion between uh, uh, when Yuichi is lying in the bed facing the wall and the female character is... uh, uh, talking uh, with him, uh, not uh, his uh, superior, but one of the pilots. I think that, that that's a good example of a scene where, oh, 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 he, here's the entire movie, kind of <laughs> explained right, right. in five minutes. So. Yeah, like a little expedition exposition dump. And you know, granted, you know, with a film like this, you need to have some sort of exposition, otherwise you'll just get stuck in the. Okay, well, these are just kids who are fighting this war or whatever it is, you know. Um, you need to have some exposition as to what they represent or what they are to this grander world that's around them. But um, but that fine line is really thin, and, you know, she really kind of jumps back and forth, you know, be, between the two sides. and And I think that could be... I don't. I shouldn't say could be. I think that will be a real big turnoff to some people, and not. I'm not just saying people who approached the anime unknowingly as an action film, mm-hmm. but even people who are kind of kind of know she's thing, you know, might get a little turned off by. Okay, well, he doesn't have to tell me all this. You know, yeah. I can sort of get this part. You know, he, he is confident enough as a filmmaker. I agree to kind of reel it in a little bit and let us deal with. Uh, some vagueness, you know. Avalon, I thought was good uh, do, uh, at, at doing that, uh, yes. but I still think it's a very um, uh, partly. It's a kind of a, as the movie goes on, it's kind of unsettling uh, because uh, if uh, there's a larger picture here, who is like pulling the strings in terms of why uh, there's seemingly a conflict going on, a war conflict going on, uh, but the the latter reveals that I that I want to reveal why it's going on it's um it's a it, it, in a very quiet way it becomes a little bit unsettling and distraught because characters finally show uh this as well that they're they're distraught over the cycle the this particular cycle of life which is very different to uh, the the cycle of life that we know of right uh which uh, I, I think it it um 
two of you in saying I, I found it um, interesting and um, even liking it. I, I'm even liking it a lot. That's always been the grade I ended up in, uh, ended up at. Um, so it, it, it's a movie where you kind of need to keep it short too and not go into too much um, because it's more interesting going in, into it with a blank slate. So that's why I, I think I'm going to keep my notes quite uh, short. But uh, I want to mention two things that uh, do you think personally that um, or did you see this in the his uh, fem female superior character that um, is based they basically uh, put uh, Major Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell in there again because she, she looks exactly like her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I assume that's probably somewhat of a reference. Um, you know, as we have mentioned earlier. Even in Avalon, I thought that's, uh, I, I never yeah. said that in the Avalon review. Ash kind of looks like Kusanagi as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, you made that comment to me, um, you know, during the week. And uh, I personally thought she kind of looked like Linda Hamilton uh, you know, of, the, of the Terminator series. Yeah. Certainly think that, you know, as we mentioned uh, in the first um, episode of the series, is that that's, Oshi, you could certainly see that as being Oshi as the auteur, so to speak, you know, you know, with these continuing themes, uh, continuing characters, these characters who are possibly part of the same world as a different film, or these characters who are just made references to the, that film, or maybe their descendants, you know, we, we don't really know, but it does sort of add to um, this theory that, you know, she has this control over his world, so yeah. to speak. It's certainly not like the template they pulled out of the drawer that happened to right. you. You know what I mean? Well, well, let's use that again. No, no worry about it. I think it must be a conscious thought. Uh, maybe he's having fun with it, possibly. Right, especially this being an adaptation, too. I mean, and it's kind of interesting that um, I read that Mori was initially hesitant to make this into a, uh, to make the, his story into a film, well, when he found out that Oshi was going to work on it, that you know, he said, "Okay, that's that's fine. You know, that's more than fine." I think you know maybe Mori sees Oshi as somewhat of a kindred soul in terms of what he what they explore as artists, you know. But you know, certainly there's some confidence in that Oshi wouldn't just turn into some sort of you know crazy action anime with cute characters and yeah. a, a funky J-pop theme song. <laughs> right. Uh, do you have any idea why, um, any um, theory why the radio chapter on the Japanese track is in English uh, when they're in the dogfights? A, a little bit of Japanese, but mostly in English. Uh, I wasn't turned off, but I, I, I'm not sure I came to a conclusion why that was. That's a good question. Um, yeah, the I was sort of wondering that myself. The only thing I could possibly think of is that they wanted to use basically, you know, this group of characters, the main characters that we know of, are part of a uh, uh, corporation, and these wars are being fought uh, between these two corporations. Yeah, the Rostock and Lautern, my subtitle yeah. said, I think, and 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 they're called Children, by the way, which almost sound like a, a mixture of two words, kill children. Right, exactly. My thought is that they use that uh, they use English because the other corporation uses a different language. So, for example, like in the U.S., how 
during the war, you know, we used, uh, you know, there's things like uh, what's called cryptology, right? It, you know, we use different languages to communicate, uh, or the military, I should say, uses different languages to communicate amongst themselves because they know that the enemy, in quotes, uh, doesn't have anyone that speaks that language. So they know in the U.S., I believe, the uh, Native American, uh, one of the Native American tribes, uh, their language was used a lot. Yeah, it's um, it's depicted in uh, the John Woo movie, Wind Talkers, I believe. Right, right, exactly. So that that was my thought that possibly that our corporation, you know, they maybe they use Japanese sure, or something. Sure, it, it makes sense. Again, it's not like they put again this uh, language in the hands of uh, uh, voice uh, voiceover artists akin to Assault Girls, where it's just uh, intrusive. It's uh, it's a curious rather, and um, may, maybe my, maybe my thought was like, okay, this is a neutral world in a way it's not strictly japanese but still they only use it in in the air so right so 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 your theory i i i, I definitely side with but it doesn't matter for the mystery of the movie you know what i mean yeah yeah it 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 sometimes it gets a little distracting because the voice acting it's not like they say like uh like uh, shoot him uh, target acquired they, they literally uh, almost uh, speak to each other like did you kill anybody yeah I did. right right, <laughs> right exactly mm. There's actual like yeah conversation, right? It's not just commands, um, but it, it can be kind of uh, intrusive because you know um, I'm sure the voice actors you know learned how to speak English. I mean they can already they already know some English, but they probably learn their lines phonetically, which definitely shows up in some of in some of the dialogue. And um, but some of it's okay, you know. Some of it feels natural. Yeah, actually. it does definitely. Um, really, as I said, I don't have any other notes. I, I, I think it's suitable for me to, uh, to, to deliver my last Oshi note by saying, uh, the animated Basset Hound is adorable. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is that, um, there are a lot of scenes in which the dog appears and is barking. And every time, um, uh, you know, every time the Basset Hound appeared in one of those scenes, uh, my dog just really went crazy. <laughs> So there must be an authentic basset hound. Um, what do you call it? Foley. Sure. Well, I'm sure Oshi made sure that 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 shit was uh, correct. You know. Authentic. Yes. Yeah. So, but it's the base dog always barks when pilots are are, are coming home again or what have you. So it's uh, not um, as uh, plot centric as it was compared to Avalon, uh, where uh, where as we said, it was Ash's dog and it just disappeared. At one point, right. here is part of this uh, scenery, but I I like it. It's by now I I think it's it's not one of those like where you go like oh shit enough's enough so enough's enough already. You know I I think it's a uh, part of his charm. I mean, seeing as I'm a dog person, it's hard for me to kind of uh, dislike that. Right, and really the dog kind of brings you know just like in Avalon uh, brings some life to the film. You know, something that's more than just you know the characters who are you know, doing their thing, but some real, like, organic feeling life to it, you know? Yeah, which is, uh, yeah, I, I can say that, that it is a bit more plot-centric then, because uh, some people in this movie are organic life, some are not, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, so uh, it, it's a, it, it plays a part, uh, definitely, and it's cute at the same time, so... Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> wonder wonder if they animated 20 more, 20 additional more moments of... Of the Basset Hound, and the editor finally said, "Oh, she, 
five minutes is enough. A 20 minute <laughs> reel of the Bassett Town walking is not good for this two hour movie. Hey, you, well, you have to credit Oshie for not having a voice actor like learn how to bark, you know, phonetically. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you exactly. said, like, we need the real thing here. Exactly. Maybe brought, it, brought in his own. I mean, I'm sure he, he, uh, he continually owns at least one. I'm sure of that. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, really, end of my notes, buddy. Do you want to share anything else before we uh, round this off? No, not really. Um, like I said, this is a very interesting film. It's, I think. Out of all the films that we've seen, um, possibly with the exception of like Angel's Egg, mm-hmm. one is more enigmatic ones. Um, certainly, you know, if you watch the film and you can get enough out of it, you know, there's I think there's a lot of interesting interpretation you can uh, get out of it. A lot of interesting metaphor, possibly, and I think there's some some of it is very clear like this is what Oshi is trying to say but don't expect a rousing like quick cut uh, loud music boom 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 time uh, very, very slow contemplative and as an animation it uh, it doesn't move a whole lot except for the action scenes and I appreciate that mix of styles uh, quite a bit I think it's got uh, that touch uh, down by now I think it does yeah you know one thing I want to uh, to recommend people checking out is uh, I just like I mentioned, uh, after I watched the film, I wanted to read uh, some reviews and interpretations of it. And uh, I want to um, mention that uh, Anime News Network has a really good uh, review of the film. It's an old review. It's uh, I think it was just after, a few months after the film had come out in Japan. But uh, uh, it, within that review is a very interesting interpretation, one that sort of Possibly, in, it's written by someone who's very much an insider. Um, in fact, it's the person who found uh, the ANN, which is a very big anime uh, website. But uh, he has a very inter- interesting interpretation of the film, which has a very interesting reflection of Olshi as a, as an animator and artist. Um, so I definitely recommend uh, seeking that out. That should be really easy to Google. I mean, it yeah, was like... I'll, I'll, uh, I'll include it in the show notes, and so people can get to it directly. And I'm certainly interested too. I wanted to read it after uh, after you and I were done, so I wasn't influenced by someone else's opinions. Yeah. So again, I, maybe I don't have a definitive, you know, recommend or don't recommend just yet, but I definitely want to check it out again, uh, maybe you know, sometime later and maybe form a more... Uh... Try, try it in English a uh, second time around. Uh, if you don't have it on your DVD or Blue, it's on English um, on Netflix. That, that dub is um, uh, quite good, actually. So Really? Okay. And actually, and actually the, the Japanese voice actors are all pretty famous people, too. So it's... Uh, Cool. Okay. Uh, Japan on Fire will uh, go on, even if it's sporadic. And next time, whether I get John to contrib- contribute or not... Not that I don't want him on, but maybe he doesn't want to be on. <laughs> That'll be in uh, 2015 or Some, uh, 25, I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, because I'm still doing podcasts uh, by that point. Uh, but uh, we, I think uh, my feeling is I want to do a shorter series um, next time around because, again, we can't get together continually, you and I. Uh, so I don't have a lot of exposure to Japanese cinema. It's very sparse. But uh, many years ago, someone recommended me... Um, uh, to check out a few movies from director Sabu, which uh, sounds pretentious. That's someone just is just called Sabu. But the two movies I saw, even though I don't remember not from lot from them now, but I saw the movies Monday and The Blessing Bell, <laughs> and I liked it. I and therefore because my memories are kind of uh, 
limited now. I don't remember too much about it. I want to revisit it and kind of just fill in a few more blanks personally because I'm curious about who Sabu is. Um, I know you certainly know of this director in general. Uh, um, yeah, I, I remember they were funny, maybe possibly like very quirky, dry movies. Possibly they weren't super serious. I did. I think that was. I think my memory is correct in that regard, at least in regards to one of the movies, Monday or the Blessing Bell. I think one was about the day, uh, the day in the life of a cop or something. Um, I can't. I can't remember. It's no, really no, there you go. So, but I'd, I'd certainly like to be on this series. Yeah. yeah so it, it's like a very new experience um, for me at, um, at the same time, despite having seen two movies by Sabu. Uh, so that's Japan on Fire next time around, essentially. So that's. Uh, round off the Oshi covers that I greatly enjoyed to kind of go over the uh, filmography in general and not, not the entire filmography but um, it was uh, cool to get an overview and because uh, I think we got a solid overview uh, I don't think a piece is necessarily missing that we like as a key piece in terms of who he is as a director is missing I think we've hit the necessary points yeah I think so too so uh, we'll see what happens in the future in terms of his work. But uh, for now, this has been Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. Podcastonfire.com is the website. The email podcastonfire.googlemail.com. Facebook.com forward slash POF network is our page. Join the discussion group. Link is available on that page. Tweet us, twitter.com forward slash podcastonfire. Follow my Hong Kong and Taiwanese reviews at sogoodreviews.com and sleazykvideo.com. And my tweets at twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Japan on Fire is on iTunes. Rate and subscribe and leave a comment if you have the time. We would very much appreciate that. And stream us on Stitcher. Uh, do that online, but also on your iPhone, iPad, or Android. Type in Japan on Fire once you're in the app if you want to add us to your favorites. And in short, vCinema. Plug your, plug your site again. It is at vcinemashow.com. And the show is spelled S-H-O-W. I know. Go there for review coverage of various movies all across Asia. Uh, including big movies like Raid 2 so it's the, it's the it's a great great versatile site uh, okay we're done thank you very much John and uh, I therefore hope we'll uh, see each other on the Sabu coverage yep so thank you Ken <laughs> <laughs>